This conference will now be recorded. Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast on obesity management. My name's Jan and I'll be your host today. And I'm also pleased to have with me Elizabeth Allen to discuss this topic. Liz is a nurse practitioner in CDE who has been working in the field of obesity management for the past eight years. She's a World Obesity Scope Certified Practitioner in Obesity Management and has extensive experience in providing quality care for people living with weight issues. In addition, Liz has a background in acute care in ICU and CCU settings and midwifery, and she has also established Aboriginal health services alongside community health services in the Yarra Valley. She currently works privately as a clinician at My Weight Loss Clinic and also provides obesity management to her clients living with diabetes via her role as a diabetes nurse practitioner at Monash Health in Melbourne. Hi Elizabeth and Liz and how are you today? Oh, great thanks Jen and I'm really really pleased to be able to come here and talk to you today about obesity management of which I'm extremely passionate about. It helps to have a little bit of passion when you enjoy your work, isn't it? <laughs> it does indeed. It's, it's because it's a tough, it's a tough issue that a lot of Absolutely. us face. So, yeah, I'm sure yeah. it is. And as we get older, we all start to have that problem. Oh dear. True, um, <laughs> uh, now, as I mentioned, we're, today we're obviously discussing the topic of obesity management and weight loss, and I'm. Just wondering how has weight loss and obesity management changed over the years you've been working in the field? It's a really, um, it's a really good question, Jan. Um, in the past, there's been the old adage, energy in, energy out. And a lot of people who've been living with obesity have been um, stigmatised uh, by society with that message and been made to feel quite um, judged and guilty for the condition that they're living with but over the years we've started to understand that there's a lot of extremely complex science underlying um, obesity in humans and we've moving um, the Canadian Obesity Society some of the European and the American societies of obesity have actually um, classified obesity as a chronic disease and in Australia, we're still pushing for that to be classified as a chronic disease mm. here. Those of us who work in the area understand that it is a chronic disease and we should be treating it as such in the same way that we treat diabetes. Um, we've also got a lot of headway nowadays with our pharmacotherapy and um, metabolic surgical choices. So in the old days, we had fairly limited access to medication choices to help people with obesity and they weren't particularly good at, or they had quite nasty side effects. But now we've got a host of um, options that we can offer our patients and they're, they're very positive outcomes um, with regard to both the pharmacotherapy and the surgical choices that, that can help people. Great, thank you for that. And I just on a slightly another tangent, I guess, Clients are bombarded by weight loss ads on TV and social media. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the science of weight loss and does every weight loss program follow the same science? Mm, okay, so <laughs> when um, the answer to the second one is no. Uh, you know that um, it's probably a billion or trillion dollar industry out there mm. and we're talking weight loss industry as opposed to obesity management they're, they're quite different things mm -hmm. so um, most people who've carried weight will know that if they've lost weight they've inevitably regained it at some stage down the track and a lot of people who come to our clinic have experienced that many many years and, and often a lifetime of yo-yo dieting so taking weight off and then weight regain. And it's a very common occurrence. Probably about 95% of people who lose weight will regain that weight. And it's, an, and it's influenced by a variety of different factors, including genetics, metabolic adaptation. Um, there's a, uh, a theory called set point theory, which I'll talk about in a moment. 
we also live in an obesogenic environment and we are affected by that environment in um, a change in our, epi, uh, in our genetics, which is um, uh, brought about through epigenetics, so um, environmental influences on our um, uh, gene expression. So set point theory um, suggests that the body has a natural weight range. And if you think about this, the body regulates a whole lot of things through the hypothalamus, you know, temperature, blood pressure, um, gut motility, all of those sorts of things. It also uh, regulates weight. And we don't actually have an awful lot of uh, choice over um, what our natural weight uh, is. Um, in a in a normal setting because it's a it's a survival it's a survival mechanism. If we had a choice over what our weight was, it wouldn't be um, uh, um, evolutionary sensible for that to happen. So um, set point theory suggests that there's a natural weight that the body's programmed to maintain, and when an individual gains weight and then loses it, the body resists further weight loss and tries to return to that original mm -hmm. uh, weight that um, that they gained to. So it will always attempt to defend its highest weight, and the um, the way it does that it does it through a number of mechanisms. Uh, and, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but not all weight loss programs understand this. A lot of um, particularly programs that may be commercial programs, they are starting to change, um, which is great, and move with the science, but a lot of commercial programs in the past and also perhaps um, exercise-based programs that are exercise-based only um, and focus on the lifestyle component um, may not be taking this into consideration. Fair enough. Thank you for that. Mm. Can you mm. help us understand why weight gain occurs? Um, are our bodies programmed to remember our weight? And I think you've actually touched on this in the, in the previous question. Mm. Yeah, as I said before, the um, set point theory suggests that the body will always attempt to defend its weight. There's a lot of um, evidence to show this and that um, a lot of the work that was done through um, the, um, the Austin program with Joe Proeto and Priya Samithran. And um, so we're very proud of our Aussie, um, uh, our Aussies out there in the world of obesity. Um, so yes, the body is programmed to defend the highest weights through our genetics. So we're genetically programmed to carry a particular weight and through epigenetics. Um, now, it is a survival mechanism that's been programmed uh, into us in the times when um, we were evolving, uh, the times that we were running around chasing woolly mammoths, we didn't know where our next meal was coming from. And so we need to be very efficient in maintaining um, a, a survival weight. Unfortunately, we now live in an obesogenic society and environment where our next meal is always there. We, we never have, or in particularly in developing countries anyway, um, we have access to an abundance of food and we don't really need that mechanism anymore. But we know that if we take some weight off at, at about the 5% weight loss, this mechanism starts to kick in. Um, the body goes into survival mode. Now, it does it through two mechanisms, through adjusting and conserving energy expenditure through the metabolism. So you don't get a change necessarily in the metabolism, but what you get is better conservation of energy um, that's taken in. So we know that it's around about 400 calorie difference. So somebody who weighs, um, let's say 65 kilos, who's never had any weight on them, and somebody who weighs 65 kilos who's carried weight and lost it, the 65 kilo person who has lost the weight will need a roughly about 400 calories less to maintain that weight than the person who's never gained weight. So 400 calories isn't an awful lot. It's about three cafe lattes I worked out. <laughs> and so, yeah, to put it in some perspective, so it doesn't take much overeating or re-eating or going back to what you were eating before you lost weight for that weight to go back on. And I talk to my patients and I say, you've kind of like gone from being the Lamborghini to a Prius or now even more like an e-car 
um, <laughs> you're very, very good at preserving the energy. And as a human, that's not a great thing because it goes into uh, goes into storage. As a car, it's a fantastic thing. Um, the other way that the body uh, attempts to regain the weight is that it decreases the hormone leptin. Um, when you lose weight, leptin is actually a hormone that's um, that's in the adipose tissue anyway. So you can imagine you've lost weight, you've lost adiposity, and therefore you've got lower leptin levels anyway. But you've got um, you've, you get an artificially lowered leptin level, and at the same time, the ghrelin hunger hormones are ramped up and there's no evidence to suggest that that settles down so we need to main we need to understand that um, the weight regain has a couple of different mechanisms that we don't have control over so just saying you need to knuckle down and just have willpower is mm. not really a very a sensible thing to be saying to people fair enough thank you for that mm. So in your practice and from your experience, what treatment protocols do you use for obesity management that have delivered consistent results? So we know that um, diet and lifestyle delivers about 5 to 6% reduction in um, adiposity, which isn't an awful lot. Um, with the um, advent of pharmacotherapy, we can increase that. But what we've found is that if somebody, and this, this happens quite a lot, as you know, that some of the medications we use in diabetes and in weight loss have become rather popular and um, <laughs> uh, they're doing the rounds of social media yeah. as well. Don't have to talk our diabetes patients into our GLP-1s these days, do we? No. Um, because they already know about it. <laughs> Um, but uh, but they're popular because they actually work and they they provide great results. But if you just rely on the pharmacotherapy, you only get around about the same level of success as if you were relying just on um, lifestyle changes. So what what I do and what I've found and at the um, my weight loss clinic that I work with, um, we use um, a two stage approach. We uh, have the um, weight loss phase where we're trying to actually reduce the weight. So we're going to be um, actively reducing our calorie intake. And um, then we go into our weight maintenance stage once we've reached a goal. And the weight maintenance stage is probably more important than the first stage because we know that weight regain is likely if we don't, if we don't um, continue doing what we did to get uh, the weight off. So stage one, that weight loss phase, I use a four pillar approach. And the four pillars are, you know, the first one is a no brainer, what we eat and what we drink. Um, we want to, we, there's no way of getting around it. You do need to do a calorie uh, deficit um, to actually start burning fat. And we need to be drinking a lot of water and also looking at the calorie content of our beverages as well. Uh, so that's very important. The second pillar is physical activity. Now, physical activity in weight loss only accounts for about 10% of weight loss. But what it accounts for 100% is a change in body composition. And this comes into play when we move into the weight maintenance stage because, remember, the body's become a lot more efficient at holding on to the energy that we intake and if we've got better body composition, i.e. we've got more lean muscle mass versus adipose tissue, we're going to be able to offset that um, metabolic um, uh, that metabolic change in energy expenditure. Pillar three, pillar three is about mental health and behaviour change. Now, as diabetes educators, we're very, very good at um, understanding behaviour change, motivational interviewing. Um, in obesity management, it comes into play a lot. And what we need to be doing is making sure that somebody's ready for the journey because it is a journey and that they've planned it. I get people to set SMART goals. I'm sure everybody out there knows what a SMART goal is by now. And also look at, you know, the stages, stages of change. Is somebody actually ready for this journey? And what are they prepared to do? And, and to be realistic about 
um, their endpoints and how long it's going to take. And the fourth pillar, plus or minus, is the pharmacotherapy or um, surgical intervention. Pharm it would always be pharmacotherapy first before um, surgical intervention, but it depends on what their, um, you know, what class of obesity they're sitting at as to um, where that will kick in. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Liz. Mm. This question probably duplicates on that a little bit, but I'll, I'll see what you've got to add. Mm. Um, mm. Which aspect of our lives affect our weight the most, nutrition or physical activity? And mm. secondly, do you focus on one aspect at a, at a time with your clients or how would you approach that? So the cat's out of the bag there, isn't it? Um, we approach them or we do four prongs all at once. Now, honestly, it really depends on that, remember, pillar three, where somebody's mental health is. Um, yeah. Remember, um, we're not doing this in isolation. We're living, um, we're living a life and we're trying to manage obesity within the context of that life. So stress levels, sleep, hygiene, um, work-life in um, balance, all of those things come into play, keeping in mind that um, stress and poor sleep can increase um, uh, cortisol levels, and we all know what um, cortisol does with regard to weight gain. Um, and so we want to actually reduce some of the speed humps that might be um, causing barriers to weight loss. So with regard to lifestyle, yes, calorie deficit's important. For on average around about 1,200 to 15 calories, uh, 1,500 calories a day, depending on um, a person's um, uh, uh, gender and also depending on, you know, what their, um, their starting weight is. Obviously, the bigger you are, the more, in, uh, the more calories you're going to need um, to maintain your basal metabolic rate. But as I said before, the physical activity, it's really important. And I get people doing physical activity even in the weight loss period because we're trying to create the behaviour change and trying to embed some healthy, um, healthy movement along the way to getting to goal so that by the time they get to goal, hoping that it's incorporated into their lifestyle. Um, and because that comes into play in maintenance and it's a significant player uh, during that. The other thing to understand is if, you're, if you lose, let's say, for instance, somebody wants to lose 20 kilos, they actually want to lose 20 kilos of adipose tissue not 20 kilos of muscle. If somebody's not doing physical activity, they may lose five kilos of muscle and 15 of adipose. But if they then stopped and then regained weight, they're not gonna regain five kilos of muscle, they're gonna regain 20 kilos of adipose. So they can actually run the risk of actually having more adiposity for the same weight that they started at if they've lost and regained and this is what we find that people are actually carrying um, their body composition is poorer if they do, if they've yo-yoed um, without physical activity. So the physical activity helps maintain muscle mass, grow muscle mass. And the other thing that's very important for us gals at a certain age and the lads as well <laughs> is bone density. Bone density, particularly in the perimenopausal and menopausal years for women, it's guaranteed um, if you're not doing the physical activity, you're going to lose bone density with a weight loss program. So they're the important parts of the physical activity, if that makes sense. Thank you for that. So mm. you mentioned touched on behaviour change. I'm just wondering mm. how can behaviour change, CBT, impact obesity management? And is it a strategy used to maintain manage the long-term goals or does it also have short-term implication and uses? Yeah. Um, look, most of the people living with, most people living with obesity, we're not talking about somebody who's just put a few kilos on, uh, you know, COVID kilos, although some of the COVID kilos we've seen have been quite significant, haven't they? Mm. Um, I, yeah, seen people with 20 and 30 kilo weight gain over yeah. the COVID period, pretty, pretty huge. But, um, but most people living with obesity haven't just become obese. They've had a lifetime of it. They've 
lived a lifetime of being stigmatised, ha being um, having social bias, and that goes to educational bias, um, job bias, um, through um, not being chosen for employment, um, being perceived as being failures. And the other thing is that people living with obesity are often their own worst enemy and they've bought into the I'm a failure, I can't do this, what's wrong with me? And so the first thing that I do is I sit down and talk to them about the science and get them to understand that they're actually normal people and their bodies are doing exactly what they're designed for. And that anybody who's living the life they're living in a larger body that has had an obesity issue is going to be facing the same problem. So it's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of, um, of biology and a, and a matter of science here. So if we can take away that internalised self-judgment and guilt associated with the weight, it's a really, really big first step. Often, um, and this is um, the um, Novo Nordisk, uh, when they did their sex ender trials, they did some trials, um, global trials, looking at people living with obesity um, uh, and who had helped them and how long it had taken to actually get help. And the majority of people had had about a nine-year um, wait from having a problem with obesity or wanting to address it to actually having a healthcare professional say to them, do you mind if we actually have a conversation about your weight? And um, yeah. and they do, they do want to be asked that because they are desperately trying to manage this. And um, it's interesting when I look, uh, when I get somebody in for an assessment in my diabetes clinic and uh, you look at the past history, and you can see the person sitting in front of you is obviously living with obesity, but obesity is not listed on their um, comorbidities or on their past history. It's fascinating. It's like it's the elephant in the room that everybody's afraid to talk about. Mm. Um, and they actually do want to talk about it because they do, on the whole, um, want um, some help. And mm. so that's that's the approach I take. It's that um, that looking at the mental health, looking at some ways to, first of all, take away that self-judgment and stigma is really, really important and get them understanding that their body's actually perfectly normal and there's nothing wrong with them. It's just, you know, just like people have diabetes, just like people have di uh, blood pressure, they've got a chronic condition that's not going to go away and we just need to sort out how, to, how best to help them. So that's why that third pillar is so important. Um, because it is important for the long haul, you're right, it's what we know about weight and weight loss is that regardless of your eating plan, if you've got a calorie deficit, you can lose weight. But, um, and so when we're talking to patients about what um, what's a preferred um, eating plan for their weight loss program, um, I don't have any set ideas. I want to work with them and, of what, uh, and look at what they've actually had success uh, with in the past and leverage off that. Um, and because they know that they've actually done it before, so they know that they actually can be successful. So getting them to um, uh, understand that we want the behaviour change to help the journey to stay the distance to get the weight off in the first place but at the same time, the behaviour change and creating some healthier lifestyle choices can help set them up for the future and to make sure that their maintenance phase is going to be successful and that hopefully that they will not be bouncing around yo-yoing all over the place. Um, some people love to be accountable. Some people love to track. Tracking is good. Sometimes it can have a negative impact on people. So I will look at, you know, the the whole person and work out whether, you know, some people love to use things like apps like MyFitnessPal and um, apps on their phones and all sorts of things uh, or Fitbits and that sort of thing. And other people won't even get on the scales, you know, because mm -hmm. it triggers them. So 
that's all about what's going on in someone's head and where they're at in that space. So I have some patients who um, do blind weighing because they don't want to know and I'm just and I say to them I'm just looking at it for the metrics just to see just like when we do our blood glucose testing we're not looking at it for the numbers we're looking at it for to see whether the treatment that we've got in place is actually working or not and if it's not we can we can make some adjustments we do the same thing with our weight loss programs yeah okay And as I said before, the stress management and sleep hygiene are really, really important as well. And the other thing that also goes unmet to a degree, remember that people living in larger bodies often have those comorbidities that are associated with obesity, such as diabetes, um, hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea, and um, and osteoarthritis, uh, and pain issues. And if pain goes unmanaged that also increases those stress hormones in the body as well so we need to address all of those things as part of that third pillar yep. thank you for that and and now moving on to the pharmacology or the fourth pillar i was wondering mm. if you could t- tell us about what medical uh, therapies available for, for for your clients and what is the cost associated with these treatments okay so Um, As diabetes specialists, we know about the GLP-1s. I'll talk about those in a minute, but they are the exciting kids on the block. We all know that, that they they work really well. In the past, we've had um, fentamine, um, duramine. We still use that. We still use it on its own or in combination with other other medications. Um, It's in some people, in the right person, it's still a good choice. Fentamine's not um, recommended for long-term use, so that's something we have to think about because it's usually only um, three to six months. Um, we do have some patients who stay on it a bit longer, but it's not a lifetime medication choice um, because it is in, um, you know, amphetamine-based and Remember, we're talking about patients who may have cardiac issues um, and we also may have patients who've got psychiatric issues. So um, it's not a medication that you'd be using there because it's going to, um, you know, increase all those, um, uh, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, and it can actually make psychosis or mental health problems worse. Uh, So for some people, it's great and others, it's not. Um, The overall success of fentamine is only about five to ten percent weight loss um, when it's mixed with um topiramate now in in australia topiramate is not um tga approved as a weight loss medication uh however um it is used as a weight loss medication in america it's fda approved for weight loss with fentamine um and it's actually marketed uh as that um why is it not um, TGA approved here. It's just that the company never put that application in. We do use it um, on its own or with fentamine, and sometimes we use it with the GLP-1s as well. So like blood pressure tablets, like diabetes medication, we can ex- actually um, add in different medications. Remember, sometimes with medications, you can get um, side effects in larger doses. But if you combine two medications in lower doses, you get synergistic effects without the side effects happening. And we can do that like we do in diabetes. We can do that with um, obesity management. So we have fentamine, we have topiramate. Um, we have all the stat, which, um, which is, oh, goodness gracious, I have not used it. I wouldn't use oh, it. Um, it's... Uh, Nobody uses it because we know that the main problem with that is um, um, it, it reduces um, fat absorption. And if anyone has a meal with fat in it, then they're in trouble um, with explosive diarrhea. Um, they only have to do that once and they'll never take it again. It's not, and, and the success rate's pretty low. And um, the tolerability of that sort of accident is pretty low as well. So uh, it's not something, look, if I had somebody who couldn't abide any of the other medications and that was our last ditch, 
it's a possibility, but really I don't think that it's not it's not really a sensible choice these days anyway when we've got access to the others. We've also got um, bupropion naltrexone, which is marketed as Contrave. Um, it's, uh, it's great. It's suitable uh, for a number of different types of patients, particularly people who've got um, uh, problems with binge eating or um, snack attacks or invasive food thoughts, particularly those people who just can't stop eating in the evening. Uh, and that's the naltrexone effect. It's got that dampening down on the mesolimbic part of the brain. That is the dopamine reward feedback part of the brain. So it works really well in those people. Um, Contra is expensive though. So that's the great thing about fentamine. It's not that expensive and topiramate's not that expensive as well. So then we move to the GLP-1 agonists. Um, and we've got liraglutide, which is um, TGA approved and as Saxenda in Australia, um, roughly about 11% um, uh, success rate with that in terms of 11% um, weight loss. Uh, that's a daily, um, a daily administered medication. And it's around about $385 a month at full therapeutic dose. So it's not, it's not cheap. Uh, and now then we've got semaglutide. Semaglutide has been approved as semaglutide 2.4 milligrams um, Wagovi. It's been approved in Australia by TGA. As you would be probably all aware, it's not yet available in Australia. It hasn't arrived on our shores. So off-label, we can use semaglutide, um, one milligram, and, um, and we have done in the past and we do so as well today. Um, obviously, we've had the great um, Azempic crisis. Um, and, um, but now, as you know, it's available and it's coming in in the bucket loads, thankfully, um, for all our patients with diabetes. And uh, we've also got the issue of them all starting back on one milligram when they haven't been on it for three months. Um, and um, that's a whole other uh, problem in itself. But semaglutide is extraordinarily good for weight loss. We get, on average, um, the um, uh, the it's been approved on the basis that it, uh, on average, takes about sixteen percent, so almost double some of the other medications um, wow. in um, in its success. Having said that, um, when we use the four pillars um, in my program that I run. Uh, it's not unusual for my patients to lose um, 20, 25% of their wow. body weight. So we're getting the same, which is the same results as you would get with bariatric surgery, with vertical wow. um, sleeve gastrectomy. And the good news is that tazepatide, um, which we know is in the pipeline on the way for diabetes, um, as a weight loss medication, obviously not TGA approved and not here, um, anything 20 to 30% weight loss. So we're talking now, there is not enough bariatric surgery around. It's also extraordinarily expensive. And even if it wasn't expensive, there's just not enough surgeons to provide care for all the people who would need it. So now we have pharmacotherapy that actually can give us, in conjunction with those other three pillars, similar results to yeah. those we see with bariatric or metabolic surgery. So that's absolutely profound and significant, and they're the big changes that we've seen. And um, it's exciting. In the pipeline, there are um, so there are dual agonists on the way, and um, so again putting a number of different um, uh, gut hormones together to create increase in outcomes, but re reduction in side effects. So it's a very exciting space to be working in. So I'm glad I'm working in it now and not 20 years ago where, where our choices I were much more limited. limited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's the same as, yeah. And like when I, you know, I've been working in diabetes for, um, 24 years now so mm -hmm. I remember when the choices you know when we got excited about 
um, TZDs and um, <laughs> uh, and sulfur nirees and metformin were all the best that we could offer our patients um, outside of insulin. And, you know, it's a space that's grown for both diabetes um, choices and also um, obesity management choices. It's it's yeah. fantastic and it's exciting. God, things move when you're not working in the area anymore. <laughs> hey, just, just uh, you've touched on a lot of this, but I'll, I'll ask the question anyway. Um, how do you determine which medication is best for a particular client? And is there a protocol that you follow when that decision's made? Yeah, the, um, we're guided by that protocol, the, the Australian Obesity Algorithm, which is yeah. consistent with the American and the Canadian and European algorithms. They're all a little, they're all a little bit different, um, but they essentially um, suggest that uh, you can have access to pharmacotherapy if you've got um, a BMI. Now, we know that BMI is not everything, but the algorithm is around BMIs. We also look at um, comorbidities as well. But if you've got a BMI of above 30, um, you can have access to pharmacotherapy. And if you've got a BMI of above 27 plus um, comorbidities, or if you are Islander or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, or Asian, because we know that they tend, they tend to have um, uh, they need a smaller BMI to have um, less uh, adiposity, um, then they can have access to pharmacotherapy as well. Um, we're not the TikTok people. We're not the ones who are <laughs> there to help you lose the couple of kilos you put on, um, you know, over the winter or any of that sort of thing. This is serious medicine. Um, and so we are guided by those algorithms. Not to say we don't have people who come to us uh, from that category and we'll help them with three pillars, not the fourth. So yeah. you've got to you've got to have the correct indication for the pharmacotherapy. Um, obviously, as diabetes experts, we know that um, GLP-1 RAs are not suitable for people with a past history of pancreatitis. Well, if they've had pancreatitis due to um, gall, gallstones um, and they've had a cholecystectomy and there's a long enough period of time um, since then, then they may actually still be suitable. So having a past history of pancreatitis um, doesn't totally preclude you from having this medication. It depends on what the source of the pancreatitis was. Um, obviously, if someone's got high triglycerides or a past history of um, uh, being um, uh, a big um, uh, alcohol drinker, then you'd have to be extremely cautious and probably um, look at um, some counselling and some treatment around that first. Um, people with uh, a family history of medullary thyroid cancers are also um, it's contraindicated to use GLP-1s in. Uh, and the reason for that is that in the rat models, um, they found an increased signal for medullary um, thyroid cancers in rats. But that's because they have um, GLP-1 receptors on their thyroids and humans don't actually have um, receptors on their thyroids for GLP-1. Um, but given that there is that correlation, it's just a blanket, no, we don't go there uh, for those patients. Um, I did mention before that people who've got uncontrolled hypertension or people with um, 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 some mental health issues, Ventamine's probably not the best choice for them. Um, it's interesting that um, some of our patients who've got ADHD uh, that are on Ritalin, um, uh, you know, Ritalin and um, Fentamine sort of come from the same world in that they're, they're both um, stimulants. Um, Fentamine in those patients does the opposite, doesn't help them lose weight. So they're not a, they're not a suitable candidate either. Um, right. Contrave, we don't use in people with past history of seizures or major depression. Um, it, it lowers the seizure thres threshold, so we've got to be very careful there. And as with any, so bupropion is... Um, 
uh, is a, an antidepressant and with any antidepressants we've got to be very cautious about starting and stopping those. So uh, if someone's got a past history of um, severe major depression we're very very careful there. Um, so uh, topiramate is pretty safe but also um, you can have issues with hypertension uh, it's, it is a seizure medication, so it's not likely to cause seizures. So there's a range of, uh, range of things here. But we don't just look at why you can't have it. We look at why it would be a good fit for you. And as an example, GLP-1s are great for people with metabolic syndrome and people with prediabetes, people with diabetes, people with um, polycystic ovarian syndrome because they are insulin resistant. So some of the reasons why we use those medications are where they're also going to get benefit from. Um, so it's not just why you can't have it, it's why it may be a better choice for you. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for that. Hmm. Um, as we know, clients are often very well informed about treatment options and pharmacotherapy from TV, social media and so on. And how do you manage such clients without disturbing the, the power shift? Yeah, well, <laughs> as I mentioned, we don't we don't service the TikTok community if um, no. if it's uh, just about trying to fit into. Um, it's not about dress size. It's, it's no. about health outcomes. So um, any any obesity um, management program that's worth its salt is will do a thorough assessment. Um, it'll look at, um, we, I use the, um, the five A's of obesity um, when I'm addressing any patient. Obviously, if they come to my obesity clinic, they're there for obesity management. But even in my diabetes clinic, we'll use the five A's. Um, so that is to ask permission to have that conversation with somebody. Um, it's to assess them. It's to um, um, assist them in getting access to help and it's to um, to continually ongoing support them. So a thorough assessment to look at the motivators. So that's that, you know, that motivational interviewing component, but also mm -hmm. to look at the barriers. So the barriers may not be, um, they could be mental health. There's, I use four, four M's, um, which is monetary. We did talk about how expensive some of these medications are. Um, so if we can help someone access a medication that is going not going to break the bank, that's going to be important. Uh, look at their metabolic um, risk factors, uh, their mechanical risk factors, so people with obstructive sleep apnea, people with osteoarthritis, and we also look at the um, mental health, so they're the, uh, the four M's. So we look at the barriers as well. So thorough, thorough assessment uh, for someone I, my weight loss clinic that I work in is actually a telehealth program. Um, we have a, a video platform that we can actually eyeball somebody um, because believe it or not, some people do tell porcupines and they'll give you a, high, a higher weight and a, a lower height to make their BMI fit the picture. Um, so I do like to eyeball um, my patients. Um, at least for my assessment. I'm not getting them to stand up and turn around no. or any of that, but you can get a bit of an understanding of um, sure. what's going on. I get people to do measurements as well because so they don't like doing their measurements, but I just explain to them it helps me work out their um, visceral fat um, um, deposition and whether they've got, um, you know, what sort of body shape they've they've got are they carrying a pear or an apple because sometimes their approach is a little bit different and um, we know um, the risk for cardiovascular events um, change when you with body shape as well so um, we're so we're very very thorough let's say um, I also explain to people that it's all about the four pillars we can't cherry pick some people will come because they've heard of the GLP ones. We won't name the um, the one that's been uh, touted around town a lot, but they've heard about it and they want that. Um, and just because you want something doesn't mean you get it. You will get the right medication 
if medication is appropriate, um, it's something that's negotiated with the clients after a thorough assessment. And also that I explain to people, if they just rely on the medication, they're going to be very, very disappointed with the outcome. We need to do the entire uh, four pillars if we're going to have the success that that we get. So as I said, you know, 20, 25, 30% success rate. Um, and that's something that they've never been able to achieve before unless they've had previous bariatric surgery. So, um, yeah, we discuss the options together and we go through the pros and cons. And, um, yeah, a lot of people do come with preformed ideas and they may change their ideas along the course of that consultation. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's how we manage it. It's, a, it's an, a joint effort. It's a negotiated outcome. I don't tell them what they can and can't have, but we work through it together. Yep. Fair enough. Thank you for that, Liz. I know we're nearly mm. there. Um, yes. It's, it's a, a long topic, and a, but interesting. Um, so just before we finish up, I was wondering if there's any other advice you'd like to share with our listeners on, on obesity management. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for the time that you've given me today. I really appreciated it. I just would like to um, summarise a couple of points that we've covered today. And um, one, the, the number one thing is that obesity is not just um, a health crisis in the developed countries. It's actually a global health crisis. We're really cognizant of the fact that um, the, if we don't address this crisis, all of the other complications that arise out of obesity, uh, and they already are, impacting significantly on the health budget and the health dollar. So we need to do some upstream thinking and address obesity first. So if somebody comes to me because they need, um, they've got osteoarthritis and they're looking at getting knee replacements, we need to get some weight off them so that the outcome for their knee replacement is going to be a, be, um, a better outcome for them and doing it in a really healthy way. But I'm yeah. really, really, we, we're fortunate in Australia that we have access to great healthcare system and that we have a quality of living and finances that to a degree for a lot of us, but not all of us, that we can afford these treatments and um, for some people they will be considered a luxury. I'd like to see them as a necessity and to see some um, some dollars uh, going in the upstream world. And in um, chronic disease management, we've been banging on again about that for the last 30 or 40 years, trying <laughs> to get more more um, more preventative health happening. Yeah. So that's that's the first thing. Um, it's I really want to get the message out to the community and to the health community, health professional community, that is that obesity is not about that simply energy in, energy out. There's a whole lot of powerful biological mechanisms underlying the obesity epidemic and that we should not be taking our frustrations out on the individuals who are having to live this life with the stigma and the bias of living in that larger body. The other thing is to say that living in a larger body doesn't necessarily mean that you are unhealthy. So when we are doing our, we are, when we are doing our assessments, we're actually looking at all of the other risk factors that go along with the um, with the obesity as well. So we're looking for diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, um, obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, the um, arthritis and also cancers as well. So they're the sort of things that we're trying to prevent. Okay, um, so we want to we want to have a chronic disease management approach for our patients living with obesity, just like we do with their other chronic diseases. We want to be really respectful and non-judgmental. And I have lots of people crying when they come to their first consult with me because often it's the first time they feel heard. It's the first time they've had an opportunity to tell their story. It's actually a really privileged place to be. Um, and it's a really, uh, it's a place that um, that we need to treat with kindness and, um, 
and uh, go in with um, with the science and not a big stick. And yeah. um, so and so ultimately, I'd like to see a world where we we funded upstream and we prevented uh, and reduced the burden of other chronic diseases occurring. Um, so it's not that you, you you notice I'm using the word obesity management, not weight loss. And I think that's a that's um, that's what we need to be thinking. It's not about losing weight; it's about gaining health through obesity management. Fair enough. I couldn't agree more. Thanks. Thank you, Liz. It, once again, for giving so much of your time today, and it really has been great to to talk to you. So thank you to those of you listening to this podcast for taking the time to do so. And to obtain CPD credit for this podcast, please go to the ADEA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au and complete a feedback evaluation. So until next time, goodbye. Well, we're done. We stopped. Uh, we stopped recording. Thank you, Bessa. Great. Not yet. But I do want to uh, ask you a favour, Liz. Um, yeah. I realised towards the end that um, you said patience a few times. Um, that may or may not be an issue, but we may also be able to correct it uh, through the power mm -hmm. powers of editing. So, mm -hmm. what I, can I just get you to say the word client and then the word clients? After that, like give it a yeah. couple of seconds break between each, and maybe our yep. editor can sort of edit clients over patients. Sure. Client. Just say it naturally. Client. Clients. Thank you. Cool. So we'll um we'll stop recording Depends and I'll send it to our. Yeah. Sorry? Cool. It depends on where you're yeah, working as to what we call them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, given that we're, yeah. Uh, it's, it is, but given that it is, we're treating it as medical obesity management, it's mm. quite often considered, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. Yes. But you're right. Yep. I'm happy to be, I'm happy to be um, edited over there. <laughs> I think okay. I think it's appropriate to use patience, but I know it's not the uh, in keeping with the language statement. So um, mm. I'm a bit conflicted as sure. well. But um, yep. yeah, we'll just we'll leave it to the powers that be and see what they say. Great, super, terrific. Thank you, Liz. No worries. Thank you, and dear, I presume I'll hear from um, people about the next couple.